We're going to take some time now to open the Bible together, and we're going to look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 to 7. We're going to take a break from our series looking at Mark's gospel. Uh, some of you were here over the summer, and we looked at um, Colossians chapter 1. We looked at it for three weeks at Colossians chapter 1, and today we're kind of continuing the next one of those next part of Colossians. So we've got two verses to look at, just chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, and there are three instructions, and I think really this reflects something of Uh, The perfect description of the Christian life. The perfect description of the Christian life. Let me read it for us. Chapter 2, verse 6 to 7. Therefore, as you received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way you teach us each day, each week. As we open your word, you speak to us. Lord, would you come and speak to us from your word? Would you come and convict hearts? Would you draw us to yourself as we unpack this passage? Lord, we thank you that you are sovereignly in control. And we just ask, we sit before you, we kneel before you, and we just ask that you would come and speak to us you would come and lead us through your word. Come and speak through me. Give me the grace to speak what you're saying to these guys. Amen. 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 So if I was to try and summarize this instruction, because really that's what we're looking at this evening in Colossians chapter 2, really an, an instruction or a set of instructions from Paul, if I was to try and summarize for you that, I would really say that in very simple terms, it means he's saying continue with Christ continue with Christ. What he's saying really is, and we saw this already when we looked at Colossians chapter 1, he's already unpacked for the, for the Colossians, of uh, the Christians there, something of who Christ is. You know, remember that we looked at this beautiful passage in chapter 1 where he talks about Christ being the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's the Lord of all. He crea- everything was created through him. So he's already unpacked who Christ is and he's already unpacked Christ's work. He talks about the forgiveness and the redemption that Christ has brought for those who believe in him. And now he's saying, therefore, now that you've received Christ, that you've, ex- that you have, um, you've believed in him, that you've experienced this redemption, now continue with him. Don't give up on him. Continue to walk with him. And you can see that in the, in the instruction that he's giving, that really, actually, it's centered on Christ. He says, so walk in him talking about walking in Christ. He's saying, be built up in him, being built up in Christ. And of course, he then tells them to be abounding in thanksgiving. Well, their thanksgiving is not just kind of thanksgiving into the ether. It's thanksgiving to the living God. So these instructions, though maybe not obvious to you, actually really are instructions about being rooted, being built up, being um, attached to Christ. What he's really saying is, don't try and do life without him. Now, you've got to understand the context which he's writing in. There are a bunch of false teachers in Colossae. These are people who would have attached their name to Christ, who would have claimed to be Christians, but who would have um, really been preaching a different gospel. And part of the the ideas that they're they're bringing into this church, into this group of Christians, are a kind of self-made religion, that they're encouraging them to um, follow commands that aren't really in the New Testament, things like asceticism, a kind of self-denial, or a a worship of angels. But they're also... um, really preaching some kind of moral improvement, but crucially, a moral improvement that is without Christ. 
You've got to think about this is kind of like the first century equivalent of diet plans or New Year's resolutions or kind of 40-day fasts. You know, all those different kind of programs of self-improvement that are so common in our world. These guys are kind of promoting a similar idea and saying, this is the way you can improve yourself. This is the way to become a better person. And essentially, the crucial thing is they're trying to do that without Christ. They're promoting something of a, a Christless Christianity, a Christianity without Christ. You can see that in verse 19 when he describes them as not holding, chapter 2 this is, and not holding fast to the head, that is Christ, and from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So he's saying, look, Christ is the one who will nourish you, nourish you. Christ is the one who will grow you. And the problem with these guys is they are trying to do that without Christ. They've detached themselves from him. And what's Paul's response? His response is, don't do it. Don't minimize Christ. You need a Christ-centered Christianity. Saying, continue with Christ. Don't detach yourself from Christ. This message, as we unpack it, I think will be relevant for a few different groups of people here this evening. First of all, if you're not a Christian here, actually, this should give you a really uh, clear understanding of what Christianity is about. See, when you're looking at it from the outside, it's very easy to look at Christianity and think, well, isn't it really about having a good community or um, and obviously, if you've been part of Grace for any, mo- any sense of time, I think you'll, you'll have observed that. Or maybe you'll look at Christianity and think, isn't it about um, kind of adhering or following a set of moral teaching, an ethical code to live by? Or maybe you'll think, isn't it about pursuing a spiritual experience? Now, all those things are true and a part of the Christian faith, but they're not the central point. The very center of the Christian faith is about having a relationship with Christ. Now, what do we mean by relationship with Christ? Because obviously that, that idea... Um, might not mean much to you. You know, you might think it's a little bit like uh, the way some people would honour and revere a kind of significant figure in history. So if you go to um, Moscow, if you're a, you know, either a communist today or once upon a time a communist in uh, Soviet Russia, um, you can visit Lenin's tomb. You can literally walk around and they see Lenin um, has been preserved in a kind of chemical mixture. I don't exactly know how they do it, but essentially you've got a kind of, I think he's standing up, uh, and, he's, and you can literally walk around him. And there's, there's a sense where obviously lots of people have sought to kind of revere certain figures in history. So uh, they've, they've uh, maybe honoured them, maybe even sought to kind of include some of their teaching in their lives. Uh, the humanists are guys similar. They, they've got a Bertrand Russell's video on their, on their Facebook page this week. I was looking at it. And they're saying, look, this, let's, let's hear from these te- this teacher. But actually, what Christians are doing is actually much more than that. Because Christians believe that Christ lived, died, rose again, and is alive today, seated at the right hand of the Father. And actually that means that there's a prospect of a real, tangible, personal relationship with him. It's not just that we're trying to incorporate his teachings or try and honor his memory. We're actually experiencing a relationship that we speak to him, we worship, we pray to him. He speaks to us, he's spoken to us through his word, he speaks to us by his spirit. There's a relationship, a personal relationship that God can be known in relationship. And I think this relationship is something of the essence of Christianity. And as we unpack uh, these these verses this evening, actually, I think we'll get a sense of what that relationship looks like. But if you're a Christian, I think this is relevant for you on a few different levels. The simplest level this is relevant is you have to hear the, the calling, the command, really, from Paul, not to move away from Christ, not to... Um, to continue on with Christ. He's saying, you've received him, now don't give up on him. And what I mean really is I'm speaking to those of you, and there were, I know there are a number of people here at Grace um, like this, who are in danger of kind of wandering away from the faith. Maybe there have met people who are uh, attracted by certain other things, whether it be temptation or, or just um, 
other ideas, things look like moths to a flame, almost drawn to kind of a, the bright lights of the city. And so it's very easy to kind of drift off away from Christ in that way. There are others who are um, maybe feeling tired, burnt out, maybe even complaining, grumbling, perhaps even starting to feel a little bit bitter, who, who maybe feel a little bit like giving up. And you have to hear the very simple uh, command or encouragement or warning from Paul here to say, don't do it. Don't give up. You've received Christ. Don't walk away from him. You've received such a wonderful thing. But also, I think it's possible as a Christian to go to church, but to unconsciously detach from Christ. Think about uh, Christ's in, uh, instructions or, or dialogue with the Pharisees in chapter 5 of John's Gospel. And, you know, these guys are, are, are guys who are seeking to be faithful to God in some way, at some level. And yet this is what he says to them. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me. What he's saying is, you're searching the scriptures, and yet you've missed me. You've, you've, you've thought you were coming to be faithful to God, and yet you've, you've totally missed me. And actually, it's possible as a Christian to maybe start out with, a, with a, a kind of intention towards Christ, but to subtly miss him. Think about this a few ways. I can think about those who are kind of really scholarly, with a scholarly disposition, Bible scholars who are saying, look, I want to, maybe you might start with a kind of desire. I want to study the Bible. I want to know more about Christ. But actually, subtly, you, you end up not focusing on Christ because you end up getting so focused on the, the grammar and the syntax and everything that you end up kind of making a, a focus on the study rather than on the person of Christ who you were trying to study in the first place. Or maybe a month that may be more relevant to some of you guys, the um, service. I think many of you might say, look, I want to serve Christ. I want to be uh, useful for him. But you can end up filling your life so full of service, so full of different activities, that you end up losing sight of the Christ that you were trying to serve in the first place. Or even experience. It's true that many of us would, would, uh, would save and treasure the times where we've experienced the Holy Spirit meeting with us in a personal, tangible way. But we might get so focused on that, pursuing that experience that we lose sight of the person behind that experience that we are connecting with the living God. And so what I'm saying really is I want to show you what it looks like to attach yourself to Christ. But even if you can have subtly detached yourself from him, but I want to encourage you to attach yourself to him this evening. Also, the final group I'm speaking to, I think, is that those of you who feel like spiritual failures. I think this is so common that you, you maybe you're struggling with sin or, or maybe you just feel tired and a sense of a failure in the Christian life. And I want to suggest to you that the instructions that Paul is giving us in this passage really should change the nature of your faith. That actually they give you a certain robustness, a strength to your faith. That actually they kind of create a, a rugged Christianity. And, and these three instructions are all essential to that. And actually I think they're, they're sometimes the key to what I think is uh, addressing this sense of failure, this sense of weakness in the Christian life that many of us experience. So we're going to go through three instructions that give us something of a, of, a, of a picture of what it means to continue with Christ that Paul is, is describing in this passage. So then the first instruction I want to turn to is obey him and remember who you are. Obey him and remember who you are. So Paul in verse 6 uh, gives them the instruction, so walk in him. Now the word walk always in the New Testament is describing lifestyle. It's describing how you live. And so even in chapter 1, we saw this when he talks about, um, in verse 12, uh, walk, or maybe not verse 12, but so, at some point, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So he's describing a lifestyle. He's saying, conform your lifestyle to Christ. He's talking about obedience. Really what I'm arguing here is that you cannot claim to be a follower of Christ 
and not seek to obey him with your life. Those two are, if, you, if you're saying, look, I'm a follower of Christ, but I don't, it doesn't really change my life. It doesn't, I don't really seek to obey him practically. There, I, Paul would say that, so there's a fundamental problem there. That those two don't match. That actually, if you want to follow Christ, it will require obedience. Obedience is a non-negotiable of the Christian life. I think one of the reasons why Christians sometimes struggle with this is a kind of misunderstanding of, what, of that precious truth, grace. And some people have called this cheap grace, um, really what we're saying is that there are some Christians who will say, because of Christ's forgiveness, it doesn't matter how I live. Maybe that's how you feel challenged in your own sin, and you say, oh no, I don't need to really take this seriously, because there's grace. And so you use kind of grace as almost an excuse to not really take seriously the commands of the New Testament. And actually I want to argue that that is a fundamental misunderstanding of grace. That there is absolutely forgiveness. There's forgiveness for the past there's forgiveness for the sin in the present, and there's even forgiveness for the sin to come, the sin in the future. And that's a wonderful truth. We're so grateful for that. But the end result of grace doesn't just stop with forgiveness. Actually, God's grace is then about working out a change in your life. So in um, Titus chapter 2, he describes something of the gospel. He says, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us, to kind of bring about this forgiveness in our life, from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. So the end result of the gospel coming into your life is not just that you experience forgiveness from God. It's actually that you become a people of his own possession. Talking about a purity, a kind of rejection of lawlessness, that your life will look different. God's grace describes both the forgiveness that comes at the cross, but also that God's means of changing you, of helping you to become this person, the part of these people who are walking in purity, who are, who are living a consecrated life to God. Because, you know, people of his own possession, think about it, like a kind of sense of, we are totally yours, Christ. So grace is not an excuse for sin, it's, it's actually a warrant for change, for transformation, for obedience. But actually, I would go further and say, to obey, disobey Christ has consequences uh, even, when we, even when we recognize the fact that we're forgiven, actually sin has consequences. And actually sin often appears to us like something of a victimless crime. You know, I don't know if you ever said to yourself as you're kind of approaching something where you know, which you know is wrong, where you say to yourself, well, who's really being hurt here? Maybe you keep returning to that same Instagram profile, that same Facebook profile, that same person, and starting to cultivate something of a lust in your heart towards that person. But as you return to it, you're thinking to yourself, well, really, who's being hurt here? Who's, who's suffering from, from this kind of private uh, moment of sin. Or maybe, um, maybe you gossip about someone. Maybe you talk to someone else, you say, look, and start talking critically about someone in a gossip, you're practicing gossip, you think it's probably not going to go back to them. No one's being hurt here. What's the, what's the problem? I think that idea that sin basically has no consequences um, is really problematic. And actually, we often tell it to ourselves to justify what we're doing. Let me give you a few consequences for sin. First one, sin will start to control you. Often we approach sin thinking we can control it. Actually, it ends up controlling you. And I think the reason for that is it never satisfies. Sin is something of a con artist. that It over-promises and under-delivers. In Hebrews chapter 11, it um, describes sin as the fleeting pleasures of sin. So that sense of which pleasure comes momentarily, but then it goes almost immediately. That sense to which uh, sin is like drinking salty water when you're thirsty, drinking it, thinking that it's going to quench your thirst, when it does precisely the opposite. Actually, you end up becoming more thirsty. So we end up in a kind of cycle of sin where we think 
this is going to satisfy us, actually we just end up more dissatisfied and then keep returning to sin. Hence the kind of cycle um, of sin, which often feels like it controls us. So sin will start to control you. And the only real remedy, I think, the answer to that question, obviously, firstly, power of the Holy Spirit, the knowledge that you have, uh, we'll come on to this, but there's a power over sin in your life, uh, in the work of the Holy Spirit. But then there's also just a, a, a sense in which you have to say, look, I don't want to even tangle with this. I'm going to choose resolutely not even to kind of take the first step. Second consequence, there's a condemnation that often sits on us when we sin. When you realize what you've done wrong, it's very often the case that you will experience condemnation. You'll find it difficult to come into the presence of God. You'll experience a kind of shame, um, a kind of sense of detachment from God. And of course, it's right that we can always bring that condemnation to the cross. We can always bring and come and receive grace and forgiveness. But that doesn't stop condemnation being part of our lived experience. Now, The problem with condemnation is it will stop you from being useful. It will stop you from being a fruitful disciple. Because when you think about being used by God, the first reaction you'll have is, oh no, if you've seen my life, I can't be used by God. He can't use me. Not when, I, not when sin is like this in my life. And so it blunts you. It blunts your witness. It blunts your desire to be used by God. Uh, John Piper, um, preacher in America, uh, described it, a generation struggling with sexual sin. And he said the great tragedy was not the sin in itself, which of course wasn't good, but actually the tragedy was, and this is what he said, is that Satan uses the guilt of your failures to strip you of every radical dream you ever had. The guilt of your failures to strip you of every radical dream you ever had. There's a sense to which that sin stops us from really stepping forward and saying, God, will you use me? Now, of course, there's always grace. Don't hear me wrongly, but it's almost like you don't need to go through that. You don't need to go through that cycle of, of condemnation and coming to the cross. Actually, you just have to say no in the first place. And thirdly, I think there are consequences in your life to sin. What I mean is, really, is that sin isn't good for human flourishing. So we shouldn't be surprised that when we indulge in sin, it has consequences which are not good. And often we try to hide these, but actually they're really obvious. Think about if you lie to your colleagues, often you'll be found out and trust will be broken. Relationships will be broken. Think about pride, which is obviously one of those kind of things that many of us battle with. Um, myself included, but it often destroys relationships. It makes it difficult to work with others because you kind of think, well, I'm, I've got the right answer here and it's just me who needs to come to kind of make this contribution. I've seen it in so many different corporate contexts where that pride ends up breaking, breaking the relationships down or making it difficult to work together. Or, I, sorry to go back to the pornography theme, but um, I remember speaking to some guys who look at pornography before they're married, thinking, well, there's no real victim here. What they don't realize is they're reshaping their brain chemistry, their sexual desires, which actually then goes on to affect um, them and their wives in their marriage. Really what I'm saying here is you are not God. And so you, and sin has unforeseen consequences, consequences that you don't always know about when you're, when you're choosing to sin. In fact, you probably often don't know about, and yet it has a cost that you can't see. But there is great hope in this verse as well. And the answer is that we have to remember who we are. You see, the instruction to walk is, is actually a little bit more nuanced than just be obedient. It says, walk in him. What does that phrase, in him, mean? Well, it occurs numerous times throughout the New Testament. And really what it's describing is how the believer is now in Christ. I think you were getting at this earlier, Luke, when you, in the introduction, when you talked about being hidden in Christ. At its simplest, it's saying, you are now Christ's man or woman. You are no longer your own. That when you become a Christian... An ownership change has taken place. You are no, lo- no longer your own, you are Christ. What's more, an identity change has taken place. Actually, what's most important about being a Christian is not what you do, 
but it's who you are. And so really, a great example of this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul lists a whole bunch of different sins. But then he says this, he's speaking to some Christians, he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. His implication is, though you did these things before, they are not who you are. There has been an identity change. Elsewhere, it describes Christians as a new creation in Christ. Now, once you understand who you are, once you now understand that you are now in him, it makes sense that you walk in him. You're walking in line with who you now are. What I'm saying is if you're walking in sin, it's like you've forgotten who you are. If you're walking in sin, it's like you've forgotten who you really are. Uh, there's a great movie uh, by, by the name of Donny Brasco. And um, I don't think many people in the morning service knew this. It doesn't sound like many of you are. Uh, just by looking at your faces, you're not familiar with it. It's a great movie. Perhaps a little bit violent and sweary for, for most of you. Um, <laughs> anyway, I'd, I'd like to claim I saw it before I was a Christian, but I think it was a little bit afterwards. Um, a police officer, named by Joe Pistone, um, goes undercover and joins uh, the mob, and he is renamed Donny Brasco. And what happens is, over the course of the film, I don't think this is a spoiler, it's, it's really, um, really interesting to watch this, is that he slowly becomes more and more like the guys he's, he's, he's infiltrated. So he ends up kind of taking on the characteristics of the guys he spends time with, and he starts to become just like them. To the point where, at the end of the film, very close to the end, he gets into an argument with his genuine wife, and he, um, he commits violence towards her. And at that moment, he realized he's become exactly like them. And the implication at that point in the movie is that he really needs to remember who he actually is, that he's not actually Donny Brasco. Actually, who he is is Joe Pistone. And so he's acting like Donny, but he's actually Joe. And of course, he goes back to being Joe as the film ends. But the point is, Paul is saying exactly the same thing to you. Saying, actually, for those of you who are caught in sin, snap out of it. You're, this is not who you are. Actually, remember who you are in Christ, that you've been washed clean. You've been made right before the living God. You've become a new person, even a new person with new desires. And actually, this is freeing. Actually, what it says to us is that that sin which feels like it's controlling you, actually, that doesn't belong in you. And it's actually possible to, to walk out of that. But more than that, that's actually that's not who you are. There's a sense to which that doesn't need to be part of your life. You can say, actually, no, that was the old me. There's a new power to resist temptation when it comes knocking at the door. You open the door and you say, actually, no, that's, the old Jeremy doesn't exist anymore. Uh, isn't, here, isn't here anymore. That's not relevant to me. That's not part of my life. So actually, you don't have to go on living like you used to. That was your old life. You have a different life now. So the first really big principle here that Paul's presenting for us as part of what it means to be attached to Christ is not to walk in sin, but instead to walk in your new identity, to live as the person that he's made you to be. That's the first real bedrock of what it means to continue with Christ. Second of all then, the second instruction that Paul is giving to us, I think, in these verses, be grounded in Christ and his word. Be grounded in Christ and his word. So he goes on, after verse 6, verse 7, and he gives these three um, Verbs, I think, I think verbs. Um, so I'm not very good at the grammatical terminology here. Uh, be rooted, be built up, and established. Be rooted, be built up, and established. And these three are all um, words that denote kind of strength. So think about the word rooted. 
When I think of rooted, I'm thinking of a large tree rooted in the ground with deep roots that go into the ground that really says whatever happens, it doesn't move. Whatever storms that come, that tree is fixed, solid, rooted in the ground. Think about that word built up. It conjures up in your mind like a kind of a house, a stone house built up that is immovable, whatever happens to it. Or think about that word established. In another translation, it talks about strengthened. He's saying, I want you to be strengthened and secure in your faith. All these words relate to strength. I think what Paul is describing is a kind of sturdiness to your faith, a kind of ruggedness to the Colossians' faith. There's substance to it. They won't be easily defeated. It's more like a large oak tree than a kind of small sapling that might be easily broken in the wind. So what does this sturdy faith look like? I think the first thing it looks like is a kind of sense of endurance, that you're not easily drawn away from Christ that you're willing to endure hardship, sorrows, persecution, that you're committed to Christ for the long haul. I think about when Jen and I uh, got married, and we um, describe our um, marriage a little bit like we, we both took one side of a handcuff, you know, a set of two handcuffs, and we both put one set of the handcuffs on our wrists. This is obviously figurative. Um, <laughs> not, not, um, and I'll leave you... Anyway. <laughs> Um, but, the, but fundamentally, we put both, both put a handcuff on, and we kind of locked the key, locked the handcuffs, and then we threw away the key. We, 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 there was a sense to which we were saying, whatever happens, uh, we are absolutely committed to each other. And that kind of commitment, that kind of resolute sense of we are in this whatever come what may, actually really brings a profound security to our marriage. It allows us to become, um, allow us to even be the people that God's called us to be or to become the people God's called us to be because we have that sense of security and commitment. And I think that's exactly the kind of commitment that Paul is describing here. A sense that you've locked yourself to Christ, that you've thrown away the key, that you're absolutely um, 100% committed to him. I think it also describes a kind of single-minded conviction. They know what they're about. They have a conviction of what is right and, what, and they're able to stick to it. It's not a kind of dogmatic aggressiveness, but a kind of unshakability. I think also this includes a kind of ability to stand up for what they believe in. So often, some of us struggle to even be known as Christians in the workplace or to be able to talk about our faith because we lack this kind of sturdiness, that kind of single-minded conviction that says, actually, I'm happy to be known for being a follower of Christ. The contrast is a kind of vacillating, half-hearted faith, a kind of double-mindedness where you're forever debating either to be committed to Christ in the first place or just a kind of sense of of whether you're really going to follow him wholeheartedly. And I think you'll find that often that kind of double-mindedness is not an easy place to be in, where your faith constantly feels at risk, where you kind of almost sense the risk that you're going to be drawn away by something else or maybe just give up because it feels too hard. So what hope is there then if you, if you hear that and you say, yeah, I want that kind of faith, but that's, that's not me. You might even say, that's not really my character. I know that when I look at myself in the cold, hard light of day, I know that that's not the person I am. That's not the person um, in, my, in my nature. Well, you might imagine that what Paul is saying here is hunker down and grit your teeth and summon up the energy to be strong. I think actually Paul's saying precisely the opposite. Yeah, isn't it? There is, a, there is, of course, a, a fact that this will start to be reflected in your character. But really what Paul is saying is not that you're going to find the strength in yourself. This whole picture of being rooted in Christ is saying, actually, the strength comes from the one you are rooted in. 
Even the picture of being rooted in Christ speaks of a kind of closeness to him, a kind of reliance on him. Think about um, the way the roots are kind of... um, the roots to any plant are the means by which they find the nutrients, they find their strength. If you, you know, if you ever tried to cut off a set of, uh, kill a set of weeds, and if you have a garden, I realise that's not many of you, but maybe once upon a time you lived somewhere where you had a garden. Um, you, if you try to destroy a set of weeds, if you just cut off the top and don't deal with the roots, actually often they come back. It's actually the source of the life in that plant is in its roots. And you see that in the picture of Jeremiah chapter 17 that we looked at. He saw that really what, what he's saying in this picture is something very similar. There's two pictures. There's a man who is, who's trusting in himself. Verse 5, cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength. And actually what happens is uh, he's like a shrub in a salt land. So he's like, it's a picture of, of almost death, but certainly very weak growth when he's trusting in himself. And what's the contrast? The alternative is the man Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots to the stream. And of course, he flourishes. He doesn't, he doesn't get anxious when, it, when it's a time of um, a year of drought. And actually, he bears fruit. So really, what he's saying is not be strong. Actually, find your strength in Christ. He's not trying to conjure up the strength in yourself. If you, to, if you are to endure in your faith, if you are to have that kind of single-minded devotion, that strong faith that Paul's describing, he's saying you will find that strength in Christ. Really what this is a picture is a picture of dependence on Christ. Actually he's saying you cannot do the Christian life without him. Don't uh, think for a moment that you can do this yourself. You're actually far more, forgive me, far more um, not fickle than you realise. Actually, that we need Christ. We need his work in our hearts to help us to be obedient, even to the commands that he gives us. So you might think at some point in the Christian life, okay, I've got the commands, I've got what it looks like, I'm now going to do this on my own. I'm now going to get on with it. And he'd say, no, quite the opposite. Actually, the way you do this is by continuing to depend on me. I remember, and this is such a a damning indictment on myself, but I remember about a year into my faith, I came to faith about 10 years ago, I remember just looking around thinking, I am pretty good at this. <laughs> like, I'm pretty good at this Christian walk. Like, I, I, you know, I love God and, you know, I'm just doing so well. I think I won't even like, if I could chart a graph, I feel like I'm, I'm ahead of the curve. Like, <laughs> I've only been a Christian for a year and already I can just see so many marks of maturity. And, oh my gosh, was that such a problem? Like, was that such a bad attitude? Because I was basically thinking that it was all me. I was basically giving myself credit for what God had done in my life. Actually, the answer then and now is that, and actually I think this as I go on in my maturity, as I go on in my maturity, I'm more convinced of my inability to follow Christ than I ever was. So actually this is part of what it means to grow in maturity, is to know that you're going to find that strength from Christ. So the question is, are you putting your roots into Christ? Are you devoting yourself to him? Are you, do you recognize your dependence on him? What does this look like in practice? I would say that it includes, or or at least I maybe even go as far as say primarily, a dependence on the word of God, a devotion to the word of God. It's of no coincidence that this same picture that we've seen in Jeremiah occurs in Psalm 1. It talks about a man flourishing. But the difference is he's putting his, the, the man who flourishes in Psalm 1, his strength is the law of the Lord. His strength is the law of the Lord. He's saying the strength is the word of God. He's almost, it's almost like he's saying, in one picture he's saying the strength is God, there's another picture he's saying the strength is the word of God, and it's almost like he's saying these two are almost interchangeable. 
Actually, if you really want to find your strength in God, what it means is to devote yourself to the Word of God, to come and find your strength and source of, of spiritual sustenance, to have your mind transformed by the Word of God, by the Bible. What it's saying is you need God's Word. And again, you're much more, I would argue, fickle than you realize. So actually, when you, when you look and you think, yeah, I can do this life, I can seek to follow Jesus, actually, what you don't realize is that all the time you need your mind re- renewed. You need God's Word speaking into your life changing your perspective, helping you to see God differently. I was speaking to a friend of mine just before the service who was describing actually how he went through a period of kind of um, doubts to God and and, um, even experiencing some level of depression. And I asked, what do you think was the cause of that? And what he said was really interesting, actually. Looking back at it, one of the things he could see was a, a lack of spiritual disciplines in his life at the time. That actually, although he wouldn't have recognized it at the time, actually the reason why he was struggling in his faith and even experiencing that depression was partly, in his instance, not saying all the time, was a sense of actually he'd unrooted himself from the Word of God. That's really interesting, isn't it? I think there's so often that we don't really treat the Bible in this way, that we, in the sense that, it, that this passage is describing, the sense to which we need it. I think we see that in the way we treat it often, actually, like how much we look at it, how much we read it. Do we recognize that kind of sense of daily need? Actually, this is the food. You know, I think a good picture is like the manna for, um, in Egypt. Like every day God gave his people manna, gave them food. And I want you to look at the Bible a little bit like that and say, every day I need to come to God and receive the food that he's given me today to, to sustain my soul. So that's the, that's the second uh, picture, really, that I'm giving you. That, that The set, first part, to walk in him, to seek to be obedient to him. The second part of a strong, flourishing Christian life is a devotion to God, a rootedness in him, and a dependence on his word. Third thing, then, third instruction that Paul's giving to us, overflow in thanksgiving. Overflow in thanksgiving. You see that? Um, at the end of verse 7, abounding in thanksgiving. So he's saying, actually, thanksgiving is an essential part of the flourishing Christian life. Thanksgiving is essential to your Christian life. If you're walking with, what he's saying is, if you're walking with Christ, if you're a Christian, actually, thanksgiving should be present in your life. And the language here is key. The word he's using, abounding in thanksgiving, is a sense of overflowing, a sense of abundance. Actually, he's saying there's a significant level of thanksgiving. I think it's a kind of irrepressible thanksgiving. You know, think about those people you know when you know, they have some good news in the morning and they just spend the whole day like, with a smile on their face and nothing that happens to them that day will affect their smile on their face. I think it's a little bit like that. I'm not saying you need to walk around with a permanent smile on your face. But what I'm saying is there's a sense of that thanksgiving cannot be affected by your circumstances. That actually the thanksgiving is a kind of robust and persistent thanksgiving. How do you know if this is you then? Well, I'll ask you, what is your internal monologue? Is your internal monologue filled with maybe things you're grateful for, thanksgiving, maybe a sense of joy, or is it full of complaints? Is it full of um, all the things that are going wrong? When you wake up in the morning, are you grateful to God for what he's done, or are you feeling anxious about the day ahead? Do you often feel more pity for yourself or compassion for others? Because often when you're kind of in this lack of thanksgiving, if you're experiencing experience self-pity, actually that almost then stops you from really looking out for the needs around you. Are you ever moved to give thanks to God? Or does church just feel like a chore to you? Now, I'm not arguing for a kind of saccharine sweet, always happy, irrepressibly kind of joyful. That may not be your your character or your personality. But what I would say is this. Even the people who are often going through the hardest times, 
who are experiencing great sadness in their lives are still able to experience and must experience this kind of level of thanksgiving. Even through, as through the tears, through the gritted teeth, they're saying they're actually they're drawing on that thanksgiving. And actually, that, is often, that thanksgiving is often a great sustenance, even in the hardest times. So it's not, it's not a kind of irrepressible joy, smiley face all the time, but it's a, it's a persistent level of thanksgiving, whatever you're going through. I would argue that thanksgiving is essential to your flourishing. Think about all the way we experience trials and disappointments. Whatever worldview you have, you need to be able to cope with the difficult things in life. Because every life will have disappointments. Every life will have difficult things. And so if your worldview doesn't have an answer to that, then you will find yourself, um, you'll become a cropper. That will not be a good thing. Think about a loss of a loved one, or sickness, or losing your job, or broken relationships. There are always different difficult circumstances that we go through. And I would argue that an attitude of thankfulness and joy in Christ is essential if we are to walk through those trials unscathed. I think there's a great passage in Hebrews which describes um, a group of people who go through a trial, but their attitude is very different, and that enables them to walk through it. It describes it like this. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. You need to hear the discontinuity there, that... If most people whose property is plundered, if, you get, if someone comes in and steals your stuff, your response is usually not one of joy, not one of celebration. Not, and actually, these guys have got a very different reaction. Why? What's the root of why they're able to endure that, why they're able to almost accept that? Joy, he talks about joyfully accepting it, probably, by the way, persecution. Um, the reason they're able to do that is because they have an overwhelming sense of thankfulness to God, that they have a better possession and an abiding one. So they're able to be thankful for the spiritual reality which offsets that kind of sense of, of disappointment they must have naturally felt when they experienced this persecution. I've observed this in a life of a dear friend. Let's call him John. John has suffered with um, an indeterminate neurological sickness that has um, really... I think it wouldn't be too strong a word to say plagued his life over the last three years. And it comes and goes, and he'll go through periods where it's really intense, and it'll affect his working life, it'll affect, it stops him being able to go out so much and uh, spend what he does in his spare time. It's affected his family. At times, it's been a cause of great distress for him and his family. And um, it's gone on for three years, and the doctors don't really have a clear understanding of what's causing it. But when I speak to him, I expect him to be sad and despondent. And that's actually rarely what I experience. Why is that? Well, it's because he has such a wonderful approach of thanksgiving. He's always telling you, when you ask him how he is, almost one of his first responses is he's telling you the things he can be thankful for, the things that are either the small mercies or the, the bigger spiritual reality in his life. And that's something incredible. He's got such a big vision of what God has done in his life and what God is doing even through, and I think it's absolutely the number one thing that sustained him through his suffering. And it really shows you what the power of having the right perspective is. Actually, even many secular thinkers have recognized this power, the power of positive thinking. That's how they would describe it. You know, there's probably a whole industry of Instagram influencers who are making a living out of basically sending positive messages uh, to uplift you and to give you inspiration. I went through a few last night. I didn't feel any inspiration. But my point is that there, is, there are people who recognize that what you need is like, you need to have the right mindset for life. You need to be walking in thankfulness, essentially. Um, there's a whole range of self-help books recognizing how unhelpful it can be to get into negative thought patterns. 
And yet, these writers have no concrete basis on which to stand on. These positive thinkers can at best say, I hope the universe treats you well. And we can say, actually, no, we've got much firmer grounds for thanksgiving, and yet, ironically, we're, we're more depressed sometimes. Actually, our grounds for thanksgiving is that we have a good father who can be trusted. We don't have to hope that the universe is good to us. We know that we have a good father. So if many, much, they have much less reason to be thankful, but actually still show the importance of cultivating that attitude in our lives. I'd go further and say the absence of thanksgiving is dangerous in the believer. I think without thanksgiving, often the Christian life can feel something of a chore, something that you're meant to do, but you don't really want to do. You might find yourself serving and starting to feel a little bit resentful, maybe starting to feel a bit resentful of those other people who serve less than you because you're not really uh, doing it for the right reason. You're not doing it with the right heart of thanksgiving. A lack of thanksgiving can sometimes lead to a sense of entitlement, a sense that God owes you, that you've done more for God than he's done for you. And you find yourself hanging on to the things that God hasn't done rather than thinking about what God has done in your life. And even I think this then can grow into a bitterness. And that bitterness can end up eating you like a cancer. It can kind of eat up any kind of sense of joy in your life. It can destroy you. So what's really going on then when you're not thankful? What's going on behind this, what I would describe in many cases, a lack of thankfulness? I think the root of thanksgiving must be in what God has done for us, and what, who he is and our status before him. What I mean by that is it's absolutely right to give thanks for all the different blessings in our lives. In fact, it's a really good thing. Every good gift comes from the Father above. So there's a sense, I think I've quoted that right, but certainly the first part, every good gift. There's a sense of everything, every good blessing in our lives we can thank God for. But the very source of our thanksgiving, the greatest source of our thanksgiving, is the greatest spiritual reality that cannot be changed. Because if you just find your source of thanksgiving in the good things in life, then I think that doesn't always prepare you for the times when your circumstances suck and things are difficult. Actually, you need to find your greatest sense of thanksgiving in what Christ has done for you. And when you understand that, and I'm not just talking about what Christ has done for you, what I'm really describing is our full riches in Christ. That many of you lack thankfulness because you've forgotten your riches in Christ. Most of the time when you're not feeling thankful, it's because you don't recognize the riches that you have in Christ. That you have a wealth in Christ that cannot be plundered. A security that cannot be disturbed by your circumstances. A heavenly home that cannot be taken away from you. It's like a lover, the lover, has entered into your life and he'll never leave or forsake you. There's a truth, a wonderful truth, that cannot be uh, taken away. Imagine a poor man who lived on the streets, who uh, you know, was obviously not enjoying that situation, was deeply unhappy, and one day was given a lottery ticket, and he won. Overnight, he became a millionaire. But it didn't change how he lived. He continued to live on the streets and experience deep unhappiness. If you heard that, you would think there was a deep sense of travesty. He's experienced so much, and yet he's living with so little. And I think that's exactly what happens, what's happening when a Christian lives without a sense of thankfulness. When you lack that thankfulness, what you're really doing is you haven't appreciated the riches that you've received in Christ. You're not celebrating all that you have in Christ. But second of all, I think it can be a lack of eternal perspective. Revelation 21 talks about God dwelling with his people. There'll be no more suffering, no more pain, no more mourning, no more crying. It talks about a beautiful picture where God will be with his people and we will be with him in a real tangible way. And many of our sources of gratitude in our life will draw on that future hope for Christians. But I think often we lose sight of that and we become a little bit like 
a child on a car journey to a wonderful destination, but who forgets where they're going and ends up just focusing on the really difficult car journey. You know, they get slightly annoyed by their sibling, maybe they start to be a little bit sick, there's a few bumps in the roads, and they just forget about the destination and they just start complaining to their parents. That's a little bit like us, that we end up just focusing on the difficult circumstances now without remembering where we're headed, where the end of the journey is. And then finally, then, how do we actually appropriate this? How do we experience this? You might say, okay, great, you've, you've demonstrated to me that I don't have an attitude of thankfulness. What I would say to you is that actually there is a discipline of giving thanks. Actually, this discipline of giving thanks, this practice of thanksgiving that Paul, I think, is calling us to in this passage is a choice to thank, give thanks, even maybe when you don't feel thankful. Often we wait for something, wait for that to feel something before we do it. And the New Testament often turns it on its head and says, actually, when you don't feel thankful is precisely when you need to give thanks. Because when you give thanks, actually you're changing your heart. And it's interesting that the New Testament includes thanksgiving in a number of times when it talks about prayer, almost like it should be part of our prayer life. So, you know, think about uh, Colossians chapter 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So it's talking about thanksgiving being part of your prayer life. Actually, there's even a promise in uh, Philippians chapter 4, which is as you pray with thanksgiving, even talks about experiencing a peace from God. It says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Actually, as you start to pray and include that thanksgiving in your prayer, actually you experience a peace from God. I think about the fact that while we do CBR, we've got that rubric, if any of you are doing that uh, Bible reading prayer um, thing that we do, um, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. There's a, there's a portion, the reason why we put that there, or why the guys who wrote, made that put that there, is because they recognize the importance of thanksgiving. So then I really want to kind of conclude for you then and say, we've got these three pieces that together, I think, create something of a strong, even dare I say, unshakable Christianity. You've got a picture of one who is choosing to walk in Christ, who's choosing to live obediently to him. One who's drawing one's strength from Christ, who's coming to him for the sustenance, the endurance, the ability to continue with God. And then finally, one who is doing that with a, a wonderful awareness of all that God has done and is joyfully kind of singing triumphantly. Almost it's kind of a victorious picture. A picture that says, actually, even whatever I'm going through, because my roots are in Christ, because I'm seeking to be obedient to him, I'm able to give thanks. I'm able to give thanks for all that God has done. It's a wonderful, really exciting picture. And I think when you see those things together, I think you actually will have something of an unstoppable church. You think about why did the early church have such an ability to endure suffering? How did they, so many of them be willing to give their lives to, um, for, the, for the Lord, willing to be martyred for him. Why were they able to go out and spread the gospel? I think it's because they had this robust, strong faith, found its roots in Christ, that was seeking to be obedient to him, wasn't double-minded in that, and then was so grateful for all that the Lord has done. I think there are three quick responses I want to talk you through. If you're not a Christian, you might have thought, well, some of this is irrelevant to me. And actually, I would argue that the vast majority of it is irrelevant. What I mean by that is, you cannot take a portion of what I've said and say, I'll just do that. So you can't hear what I've said and said, you know what, I think I'll just incorporate that thanksgiving into my life. What, what Christ is saying actually is you kind of have to take all of him or nothing. Actually, that Christ is saying that you'll only find the thanksgiving, you'll only find the joy in thanksgiving, you'll only have the reason to give thanks actually when you come and find me. So Christ is always, it's talks about Revelation chapter 3, knocking on the door of your life, always, in, always offering himself, saying, I want to come into your life. Will you have me in your life? Will you allow me to, will you come and attach yourself to me? There's always an open invitation to allow him to be the Lord of your life. 
What about if you're a wandering Christian? If you're one of those people I mentioned at the beginning, the people who are kind of at risk of walking away from him. Well, you must hear Paul's calling, must hear his, his kind of pleading with you even to continue with Christ. You've received so much. You've received him into your life. Don't walk away from him now. Think about Esau in the Old Testament. He gives up his inheritance for a bowl of soup. Something of that, when you're thinking about walking away from Christ, you're, what you're doing is thinking about giving up what is the most precious thing in the world to uh, receive what is the value of the, a bowl of soup. But and if you're a Christian, if you're not maybe in danger of wandering away, I think I just want to ask you some questions. Are you attaching your life to Christ? Are you seeking to draw richly from the well of Christ, from his living water? Are you seeking to conform your life to his commands? Are you seeking to be obedient to him? And are you aware of his goodness such that you're walking in a thankful heart? Actually, the the wonderful truth is, however you feel, if you feel like you're a bit lopsided, you feel like, yeah, I'm doing that, but I'm not doing that, wherever the, almost where the Spirit is speaking to you in this, the wonderful good news is that that Christ is always coming to draw near to us. The invitation is always draw near to him. There's no sense that if you recognize there's something in your life that we've spoken about this evening, that you can't come and bring that to Christ. That you can't come and remedy that. You can't attach yourself to Christ. In a moment, I'm going to give out communion. And as I give out communion, that really is an opportunity to remember, to celebrate all that Christ has done. Actually, it's a cause for thanksgiving. As we worship tonight, I'm sure there'll be an opportunity to give thanks. And that's, of course, the right response as we hear this. I'm just going to pray for us, particularly those of us who are Christians. I'm going to hear, give voice to your desire to attach yourself to Christ. So if this is you, if you hear there's parts of this that you want to respond to, I'd encourage you to kind of inhabit my prayer. If you're not a Christian and you hear that and you'd like to appropriate this, you'd like to experience the fullness of Christ that he offers, then I'd love to chat with you afterwards, pray with you. Let me pray. Lord, we know our hearts are fickle. We know our potential to wander away from you. And yet we know that there is no sense that we can wander far off before you come after us. But we thank you for that picture you gave us, that you go after the the lost sheep. Lord, that even if we've detached ourselves from you in some way, even if we're not walking with you, even if we're not um, giving thanks to you, even if we're not uh, drawing deeply from your wells, we thank you that we can always come to you and receive your living water. We want to come and receive your living water this evening. We want to come and put our wells in your living water. We're so grateful for that promise, that, that the willingness that you draw near to us, Lord. We want to draw near to you. We want to come and receive your goodness again. We want to attach ourselves to you. We want to walk in step with your spirit. Lord, would you bring that in our lives, Lord? Would you consecrate us? Would we be those people of your very own possession? Thank you that we already are those people by your grace. Would you help us to live in line with that reality? We treasure you, Lord. We treasure what you've done in our lives, what you're going to continue to do in our lives. We're so grateful for that. We celebrate that tonight. Amen.